You're listening to a press conference from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health with Michael Minna, Assistant Professor of Epidemiology and a faculty member in the Center for Communicable Disease Dynamics. This call was recorded at 11.30 a.m. Eastern Time on Friday, March 5th. Uh, Dr. Minna, do you have any opening remarks? Uh, no, happy to take questions. Okay. Uh, first question. Great. Thank you, Dr. Minna. Uh, my question is about uh, a tweet that Julia Marcus, your colleague, um, had, had put up a few days ago, and it, it got some attention in the Boston Globe. It was about the J&J vaccine and how its efficacy continued to improve through, well, beyond day 56. Um, obviously, it got some attention for reasons beyond just the data, but uh, I wondered if you could comment on the data portion of it. I'm, I'm interested in uh, the way that the efficacy is measured and, um, uh, you know, especially since it, at some point it seems to rise above, above the 90% threshold, uh, which would make it more comparable, I guess, to the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines. Thanks. Sure. Yeah, I think that, uh, that, that tweet certainly got a lot of, uh, a lot of attention, not having anything to do with the rising efficacy, <laughs> so, right. uh, uh, but it's an interesting, I mean, the data is extremely interesting and, um, and frankly fits um, with a, a lot of, uh, a lot of what we know about immunology again. Um, and we, we know that immunity um, improves after an exposure. We have uh, affinity maturation. Truly, the immune cells that are responding to the pathogen can continue to mature over time. And that happens over many weeks, uh, which is exactly, I think, what is being detected there. Uh, you have this uh, maturation of the immune protection. And uh, it's kind of, it's, it is along a continuum. So um, you can have sort of uh, a, a very, very fast uh, immunological response, which uh, does concern me about the mRNA vaccines uh, to a certain extent is, uh, we saw this uh, very, very swift rise in, in efficacy up to about 90% within the first couple of weeks. Uh, and then uh, of course the extra booster kind of pushed it a little bit over that as well. Um, with the J&J &J vaccine, we saw this kind of very gradual increase in, in uh, effectiveness uh, in these uh, in efficacy in the in the clinical trials, and that's essentially uh, determined by looking at uh, doing uh, essentially stratified analyses, but doing looking at how uh, what are the rates of infections uh, and disease that occur over time uh, when you're setting sort of time point zero as the time that you get the vaccine, and so I think that this is really a reflection of the basic properties of the immune system. It's important to remember that um, uh, that we might also see this with the other vaccines. Uh, for example, we made the 21 and 28 day time window that has been discussed so much for the mRNA vaccines wasn't based around a good biological reason. It was based around accelerating the time course needed to run the clinical trials, which was unfortunate because then everyone kind of glued, got, became glued to this idea that 21 and 28 days was essential or even optimal. and um, and there's no evidence to suggest that it's optimal. It was just to speed things up. Um, had we waited, for example, and given a booster shot at two or three months, um, maybe that would have been even better, which we actually saw with the AstraZeneca vaccine. And so 
Um, I think that uh, this is consistent with biology. I did have one follow-up question. Um, Bruce Walker had said during a talk of the Mass Consortium on Pathogen Readiness that the J&J &J vaccine also had, was showing evidence of T cells. Uh, and he suggested that those were not being seen with the other two vaccines. And furthermore, that that T cell might be providing a broader type of uh, protection against potential future variants that had not yet arisen. Um, how, how does that work? Is that, does that jibe with what you know? Um, does that make sense to you? And have you heard anything about T cells appearing after administration of either the Pfizer or the Moderna vaccines? Yeah, so the way that the T cell response works, essentially T cells are slightly different than an antibody response. Um, an antibody response has to, you essentially have a piece of a protein that gets recognized, but it's usually in sort of a conformational shape. And um, so if this is a protein, you know, maybe an antibody comes and recognizes this. On, on the other hand, a T cell, what happens is once a virus is infected, it waves, the, 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 the cell waves a little white flag and tells the T cell to come and eat it. And so the T cell goes after the cell that's infected and not the virus itself. But the, the reason I bring that up is what happens inside the cell is very important. The cell chews up that protein. So you have this protein, the cell like chews it up and then displays just a little piece of the protein, just a little nine amino acid piece usually, maybe 12. And that just sits on something called MHC. Um, why that's important is because uh, what it means is that if you have a big protein, um, you, you may have a lot of different epitopes on that protein once it's chewed up and kind of split into all these little bits. Any one of those might become a T cell epitope. And those little bits can be conserved uh, across various mutants. And so, um, so that's why there is this potential and that's why there's a lot of fervor around T cell immunity. Um, I think that it's a little bit speculative to suggest that it's going to be uh, make a massive, I, and I don't think Bruce was, was making that uh, speculation that it's going to be a massive difference, but uh, there is some thinking that because it's really recognizing these much smaller little bits that you could potentially have a, a sort of broader response. Um, uh, to be honest, I haven't kept up with the J&J vaccine um, T cell literature enough to um, to, to comment one way or the other, if I feel that this is really going to be, uh, you know, if I've seen the data that, that this is really going to be a major overhaul with this vaccine and if it's necessarily responsible. But uh, T cells are something that have always been around. They're not a new thing for this virus. They're a new discussion during this pandemic compared to others because uh, really a lot of the T cell um, biology and tools to study T cells in high throughput and in larger numbers um, have really only been developed in the last half a decade. And so, um, so they just weren't, haven't been as much a part of the discussion compared to serology and antibodies, which go back um, many, many years. Thank you. Next question. Hi, Dr. Minna, thanks a lot. I'm calling about the Broad Institute it seems that they changed their protocol uh, at the end of January in terms of testing and what is deemed a positive test. 
and it, it changes it so there's fewer tests that are deemed positive, a very small proportion of fewer tests. And I know you've said before of uh, the problems with the PCR tests for um, controlling outbreaks. So could you comment on this? Yeah, this is part of a slightly larger discussion across the globe, um, which is a recognition, um, as I've, and many other people have said, uh, is that uh, using a test like PCR can, uh, can be so sensitive that we are potentially uh, able to get false positives uh, and we're potentially able to detect true positives for a, a very long time. And, uh, and this is a way to balance those measures up. There's always this balance between sensitivity and specificity. We wanna, uh, we wanna limit uh, false positives as much as possible um, while still maintaining relevant high sensitivity. Uh, the, the CDC assay, uh, which is the base assay that the Broad uses, uh, and many, many PCR assays around the world, uh, usually use a CT value, a PCR threshold of around 40 uh, to call something positive, meaning below 40, you're positive, above 40, you're negative. Uh, but that is a very, very, um, that is a lot of cycles. That's uh, potentially amplifying a single molecule a trillion times just to get a signal. Uh, and theoretically, that means you have essentially one molecule. If you're, if you're having to go all the way up to 40 cycles to get a positive, you, know, you might have just uh, you know, one molecule in the, in, in the reaction, or you have um, no molecules, and it's a, a, a false positive due to any number of mechanisms that can cause a qPCR reaction to falsely turn positive when you go out to that many cycles. So this is an effort to improve the specificity. Um, it is not suggestive. I think a lot of people have confused this whole discussion, assuming that you know, the majority of PCR values are false positive. That's not true. Uh, but I would say that uh, we, don't, we never needed to go to such high sensitivity uh, on these PCR tests. Uh, that just wasn't a ne necessary thing. It's one thing if you're testing for HIV and you want to um, really be monitoring people's viral loads and to know if they are, um, if their virus has mutated to get away from their HIV therapies. Um, but for an acute respiratory virus, which grows from you know, a few viral particles to a trillion in a day, we don't really have to worry about the few. Um, most of the time when you're just measuring a few, you're way post-infection. Um, and uh, so this is in an effort to sort of limit potential false positives and keep sensitivity, keep the relevant sensitivity very high still. I just have one follow-up. Do you know of other labs um, that process a major, you know, a large number of tests that have done this? Um, I uh, don't know of other labs that, I'm sure that there are. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know of labs that have sort of changed their major process midstream um, so far, but I think that I'm sure that they have. There are probably plenty of labs that have been tweaking their assay since starting it um, in the middle of last year, uh, but I don't know which ones they are. I know that um, you know, Curative is, is probably the other major, is, is the other one of the major labs that um, isn't LabCorp Quest. Curative is a little different. It's working across many, many different physical laboratories, but um, 
I know that they've been thinking about, you know, they've been advancing their own technologies using sort of mouth swabs and such, but I'm not sure of any others that have specifically done this. Thank you very much. Next question. Hey, Michael. Thanks, Nicole. Um, hey, so uh, the biotech sector is really just blowing up here, just FYI, um, in a bear market. Um, so on your rapid test, um, in the past, you've sort of discouraged us from thinking about it. I mean, you used the phrase license to party, which is, I don't know, maybe a little bit cynical. But I think there are settings where, you know, you might have a chance to meet somebody you haven't seen for a long time and, uh, you know, just to test out so you can know whether you can hang out or not, particularly if you're near an at-risk category. Um, I wonder if you might consider kind of repitching your idea and maybe emphasizing that angle a little bit more. And if not, why not? And the reason is that if you gen like for us, that has a lot of appeal on that level. So if you generate an interest in the public, that might also capture the attention of politicians. Yeah, it's a it's a somewhat fraught question. I I completely uh, uh, completely agree with you um, on the one hand. Um, you know, from an epidemiological perspective, I think that the best, most powerful use of these tests is to have just the population using them twice a week on an ongoing basis, just to keep R below one and stop outbreaks from happening. Don't change anything if you're negative, but if you are positive, you stay home and isolate. That's kind of the, that's a very, very powerful epidemiological approach is just massive distribution. Don't worry too much about um, the individual metrics, but if you are positive, don't go out. That alone, if we could get enough tests out to the community, that would stop these outbreaks. That would have stopped the outbreaks that ultimately happened in the fall and winter. But, you know, we are in a different time now and people are no longer asking the question, can we stop the outbreaks? Now people are really asking the question, can we gather again? And so I think your point is very well taken. Um, the issue with the rapid antigen test is that, um, as I've said many, many times, it is positive when you're infectious. And that's great. That's you know very good. Um, but it is going to be negative until you're infectious. Uh, and so uh, the concern is that, uh, and what I've seen happen, even with PCR, this is happening all over the place, um, is that people get a test at one period of time and then you know, don't have a good sense of how long they can kind of consider that test to be sort of valid as reflecting that they're likely not infectious. My personal feeling is you take a high quality test like a Binex now or one of these other rapid tests, uh, take one of the good ones, and if you're negative, you're very, very unlikely to be transmitting at least for the next following hours. You know, so could you have um, a party where everyone shows up and tests negative? Probably overall, it's a whole lot safer, you know, to have a hundred parties where everyone tests negative right before walking in the door than to have 10 parties where nobody tests before walking in the door. It's a lot safer to have the hundred with tests than the 10 with no tests. So I think that if it's a way to get people to test and kind of get socialization back into our culture um, and society, I think that that, you know, at the end of the day, it's going to be um, a net benefit. The problem, the real problem is, frankly, like media attention and how events are covered. 
And it's really difficult in public health to keep a balanced discussion going. If you do have, let's say you have 100 parties and everyone tests negative before the party, but you end up getting an outbreak in one of those parties. You may be, but you have a positive person who's getting filtered out in every single one of those hundred that otherwise would have walked in. You've then, you've just uh, prevented 99 outbreaks, one goes through, but that one is the only thing that's gonna get reported on. And so it gives this false denominator for the population. And so people then lose confidence in these tests. So how to balance that, that's a really hard question. And so in some ways, from my perspective, and this is not a like this isn't a problem of the media. This is a problem of everything, of the biases in medical of medical um, science. You know, we always focus on the bad, and we never report just the daily grind of good um, uh, and positive benefits. Same thing with the Rose Garden event, for example. Um, so, how to keep the confidence high while saying people can go socialize, while knowing that there is going to be a breakthrough outbreak every now and again. It's almost easier for somebody like me to sit here and say, well, that's not the uh, appropriate use of these. You know, I'm calling for something else. Versus if I say I'm calling for everyone, for, for people to use this as a tool that can allow them to socialize, um, probably the net benefit is absolutely there. But it's gonna be a snowball effect of the, the, the few outbreaks that do occur despite the tests are going to be the news and it's going to cause a lack in public confidence and so from my position i have a very difficult time trying to figure out how to weigh these competing forces i know mathematically very well that the competing forces fall on the side of it's better you know if you're going to go socialize use this as a green light test but from a preservation of of the discussion in some ways uh it's better to call this a red light test than if people choose to use it as a green light test. So be it. Um, that's yeah, a very I, honest I, uh, answer, I suppose. <laughs> well, yeah, it is. Um, I just think, I think you have a really compelling idea, and I think you're thinking about a big picture, uh, which is how you think, and there's nothing wrong with that. But, you know, most people think only about their own self-interest. So for, from a from a public health perspective, I get your point, but from a political perspective, if you sold it as an idea that allowed people to, uh, you know, to get a green light ahead of a, a dinner gathering or something like that, I don't know. I just, I think that would make a lot of sense in terms of like reaching your objective of getting this accepted and getting the media on board. That would be a really appealing concept, I think. So anyway, all right. Thank you. Yeah, no, just to just to follow up, though, I, com I do completely agree. But I, I also, if I and the media and the and and the policymakers say use this to help you socialize as a green light test, just imagine what happens when then the when then the media then says, just kidding, this didn't work. And the no, no media is going to pay attention to the millions of gatherings that go on where no outbreak happens. Media is just not going to care. There's going to be no media around the outbreaks that don't happen. Um, but the message is going to be all about the few times that it does happen, and the public loses confidence very, very fast. So I don't personally know how to control the media enough to counter those. To to how do you get a media infrastructure that is focused on negative outcomes and news to care about non-news? 
you know, to care about reporting on all of the, the parties that are happening where no outbreaks happen because of rapid tests. You know, the, it wasn't done in the White House. The biggest news item around testing in the White House was the one day there was an outbreak, no media attention to the 250 days where there was no outbreak. And that, that one event alone caused a massive reduction in confidence in the public globally about the use of rapid tests. Um, we just saw another one with some, some guy from XPRIZE, you know, talking about a bad experience, they use rapid tests poorly. But, you know, that was one event and that got, that went viral. So I don't really know how to, how to message this in a way that I think that they can be most po positively used, which is exactly what you're describing, without also trying to just battle this never ending fight of explaining away these few, the few outbreaks that do happen that become the center of attention. So it's a really difficult thing in public health always. Yeah, that's interesting because in the plane land safely, we don't cover it. Okay, thank you. Thanks very much. Uh, next question. Hello. Hello again, uh, Dr. Mina. I have a question on, uh, on the, um, the efficacy uh, against the uh, variants uh, which uh, a subunit vaccine have shown. So I, I read some uh, publications about uh, Novavax subunit vaccines, which show that uh, they have, uh, according to the publication, not according to me, the highest, uh, uh, basically, uh, um, the, the highest rates of efficacy against the variants. And asked this question also to other experts, and they told me that uh, subunit uh, vaccines, they can target a wide array of variants without actually explaining me uh, why. So I would like to ask you if you agree with that, and if you agree for which reason these subunit vaccines should be more effective against variants. Uh, yeah, certainly. I mean, I think um, the subunit vaccines are potentially very, very uh, important. I mean, it's using... Um, it's using uh, updated understanding of biology and under understanding um, of uh, um, of how the immune system works. You know, rather than just taking the natural uh, the natural response to a spike protein, for example, or the natural spike protein, and trying to um, just repeat what nature would normally have happen, subunit vaccines are are a slightly different attempt to. Uh, you know, say, look, we can actually go a little bit rogue here. We can control, uh, we can tell the immune system exactly what we want it to see rather than hoping that it sees what we want it to see. We've done that a little bit with the mRNA vaccines and, and all of the vaccines which are presenting the spike protein. But you can then take that and go even further and you could say, look, we're actually not going to do even you know, full, the, just the full spike. We can actually pick and choose what subunits from this virus we want to put in. And we can make a whole variety of them. We can decorate uh, a nanoparticle with, with a whole bunch of different subunits if we want, and essentially give somebody the experience of responding, of getting to know and recognize all of these different proteins uh, and pieces of proteins without actually having to give them a live attenuated or a killed virus. And so, uh, in some ways, I mean, the mRNA vaccines could technically do very, very similar things where we could plug in multiple mRNA strands into a single vaccine, into a single lipid capsule, and, uh, and 
put that in, and I would actually recommend that we consider doing that. I'm sure Moderna's thinking very hard on it. Um, uh, but that's essentially, I mean, it, this makes sense. This is a, taking a, an, an even more informed perspective as to what are the most likely subunits that people will respond to that could create immunity and, uh, and placing them in and, and it can create more of a diverse immune response. My real major concern about all of the major vaccines, Novavax excluded, um, is that they are all giving uh, the human uh, body an introduction to the same protein. There's very little diversity. There is some diversity because we can respond to all different parts of the protein, um, but there's generally not a lot of diversity in the response. Um, it's all against the spike and the receptor binding domain and a few other places. And so this is a way to um, give people more diversity and hopefully not lock them into a specific immune response in the future. So a follow-up follow -up question, given what you said, should we consider that uh, uh, the best uh, strategy uh, against the variants would be uh, repurposing uh, disabled vaccines rather than mRNA vaccines, which are more complicated to manufacture across the world since because of the cold chain logistics? Well, I don't know. I think that they can all be used similar. Like you could take any of these different vaccines and make them um, have multiple proteins. Um, Novavax just is a technology that makes that, it's very explicit in the technology that um, you have a subunit vaccine, you can put multiple subunits on it. Um, uh, so I, I don't know that it's better or worse. Um, it is showing that it's, I think the diversity uh, and the subunit approach is really honing in. Um, we could do the same thing with the mRNA vaccines. Um, there is some difference where the mRNA vaccines, you need to make sure that the proteins are going to fold appropriately which is why you're kind of stuck putting, giving a whole, a whole protein for the most part. Not always, you could, you could find different pieces of mRNA that alone will create a nicely folded part of that, like the receptor binding domain is very stable, even if you're just making the receptor binding domain of the spike. Um, but to do that at scale, it just takes a, a little bit more um, finagling to ensure that the mRNA strands that you're putting in are going to fold appropriately into something that conforms to what's naturally on the virus, whereas the Novavax, that's just already pre-programmed into their their design of it. And, and a question about uh, drugs. So I was told that um, uh, why vaccine target uh, the receptor binding domain, which is exactly the portion of virus which is subject to uh, mutation and create the variants. Drugs and actually target the protease, which is more conservative where the genome genome is concerned, and actually. Yeah, the, the, anti, the antibodies produced by the vaccine, they cannot actually penetrate and, 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 and target the, the, uh, the protease, while actually the drugs can do it, killing uh, the virus inside the cells after they are contaminated. So why do you think that there is not enough effort on drugs as, as a future preventive measure? Or you think there is enough effort, but just the drugs, they cannot be developed as fast as vaccines? Um. I think that uh, there, there is a major hunt for small molecules um, for, for this virus. Um, you know, but at the end of the day, drugs are great, but they require you to get infected to be beneficial. Um, so certainly all of the effort has been on the vaccine. Um, you know, for, and whether that's the right approach or not is, uh, is a slightly different um, question. Um, 
but I think that vaccines, the it's just a, we know a little bit more. You know, to really find a good small molecular therapeutic is going. You just have to hunt for it. You can use. You, there's a lot of. Of course, you can make that hunt very. Um, you can use educated uh, guesses and what what you should be hunting for. Um, but the vaccine was just a little bit more straightforward um, to to build. We had the technology is already there, and and essentially these mRNA vaccines in particular were were um, essentially as simple as taking the sequence and and plugging it in. Um, so I, I think that it's just the speed uh, uh, more than anything else. It's also easier potentially to look at efficacy from a vaccine. I mean, you can do it with a drug trial, but then there's so many biases that happen once you're um, evaluating people who are already in the hospital. Um, it's a little bit more difficult to really see um, beneficial effect relative to just preventing infection altogether. Okay, thanks a lot. Uh, next question. Hi, doctor. Thanks for taking questions today. Mm -hmm. um, here in Ohio, uh, the J&J &J vaccine has gotten distributed out to uh, community pharmacies, which tend to be in the far-flung corners of the state. And as you know, the original top-line efficacy numbers for J&J, &J, uh, as opposed to uh, Moderna and Pfizer, didn't look as good. I realize there's more to the picture than that. But uh, the pharmacists I'm speaking to say that, you know, there's a notion abroad that um, the second rate vaccine is getting sent out to the sticks. Um, how do you suggest pharmacists communicate with their patients uh, to let them know that that's not the case? Um, well, the, the honest answer is we have to create more science. We need to continue to show um, data like we were discussing before that, hey, look, this isn't a second-rate vaccine, that this, that the data shows uh, that this vaccine is working essentially as well. Um, we need to, there's a chance that it will actually work better. Um, but there is so much fanfare around this 94%, you know, in the acute phase after vaccination, which may not, you know, in the long run might not last as long. Um, uh, I think that the best thing that a pharmacist can do, and this is this, this same question is coming to me all the time now, um, you know, sh should I get a second rate vaccine um, or should I wait for an appointment for Moderna or Pfizer? Um, and I'm recommending get the, get the J&J &J vaccine. I actually think it might be better in the long run. Um, I think it, the best thing to do is to, you know, depending on how savvy the person is that's, that you're talking to, some people respond really well to data. Show that chart, you know. Show although the initial vaccine trials were not as um, encouraging, the real life data, the the field trials, you know, we're starting to see um, benefit. You know, as we go further and further out in time, that actually we were mistaken at the beginning in terms of the trial data, uh, for example. But it is going to be a pretty hard message to confront because the J&J &J vaccine specifically, because it doesn't have the same freezer requirements, it's going to go to lower income areas. It's going to go to places that don't have minus 70 degree freezers at, its, at their disposal. Um, so there's going to be this like very clear dichotomy in terms of where this particular vaccine is going. And when you couple that to the message that it's less effective, that's a pretty hard pill to swallow. It's a pretty hard thing to change and to clarify and to say, no, you know, I know we said in the trials that it's less effective, but it's actually more. 
people are going to be skeptical. And that's why I think we just have to keep creating more data, keep doing the post-market evaluations. And, uh, and this is a good place for the media to really, uh, again, um, put out positive media, say, look, this is actually working really well. This is exceeding expectations, whereas maybe some of the other vaccines might be slightly not exceeding expectations, for example, the trials. And so I think that it can be balanced, but it is going to be a, a I think it's going to take a lot of messaging. Hey, thank you. Uh, next question. Hi, Dr. Minna. Thanks again for doing this. Uh, my question, I have two questions, actually. My first is, can getting the COVID-19 vaccine cause, a, cause you to test positive on a COVID-19 test? Why or why not? And I guess differentiate between the diagnostic and the antibody test. And then I'll ask my, my second question when you're done. Um, uh, it will not cause you to be positive on, uh, on a viral test. Um, there's the, the vaccines are given as shots, and there's really no reason for the protein mRNA to make its way up into the nose where we're sampling, for example, um, the antigen test. It's just a diff different compartments, and most of the tests don't look for spike, uh, are looking for a different part. Um, so there's essentially no, no way that um, the vaccine, the current vaccines uh, would cause somebody to turn positive. Um, of course, if it was a flu mist kind of spray vaccine for coronavirus, that would be different, but that's not what any of these are. Um, uh, for the serology, is that's really important, and this is going to be a pretty difficult thing. I think that um, for the sake of the physicians, you know, most physicians in the world don't really understand this stuff. Um, uh, and, and it's confusing to most people. Um, so what I think we should start doing is label antibody tests. Antibody tests very well will turn positive after somebody gets a vaccine if they're looking for antibodies against the spike protein um, or, or any of the other subunits and proteins that are in the vaccine. But they will not turn positive uh, if it's an antibody looking for nucleocapsid, which a lot of them are. Uh, so this is going to lead to a massive amount of confusion, I think, where um, people are, doctors are going to go and order an antibody test for a patient, or if a patient's going to do use the direct-to-consumer antibody test, they might be looking for antibodies against nucleocapsid. They're going to say, what the heck, I just got vaccinated two months ago. I can't believe I'm not protected anymore. Um, but really, they're just looking for antibodies against the wrong protein. And uh, so probably what we should start doing, and maybe it's already being done, I'm not sure, is labeling these like will not detect, you know, a response against X, Y, and Z vaccines. It should be plastered uh, on the ordering forms and very, very clear on the box um, because it is a confusing issue for, for many people. Thank you for explaining that. Uh, I appreciate it. My second question was, uh, is it safe to get the COVID vaccine if you've recently been vaccinated for something else like shingles, influenza? Um, should you kind of plan those other vaccines around when you get your COVID vaccine? Well, I would say we certainly don't have the data to back up one answer versus the other. It's something that I actually study in my laboratory is how do immunological responses to one thing impact one vaccine impact another. Um, sometimes it's actually beneficial, sometimes it's not. And um, uh, I would say in this case, it's generally, um, 
you know, I, my, my, my expectation, which isn't backed by data, but it's backed by knowledge of the immune system and studying this for other pathogens and responses is um, that there won't be a major impact, that there won't be um, uh, a massive uh, reduction in your ability to respond to coronavirus vaccine if you've just gotten a rubella vaccine or something like that, um, or a flu vaccine. Uh, sometimes they actually bolster each other. You have an immune response that stimulates all the machinery and the machinery is shared between the two responses. So you can actually get uh, a synergistic effect. Um, and so I don't think that it should be top of mind for people, but also uh, I wouldn't necessarily recommend um, somebody go in on day one and get one vaccine and then go in on day two. Like give, if, if you do that, maybe give your immune system uh, a, a week in between or something along those lines to just kind of reset. Um, that is completely without data to back it up. It's just um, may as well just kind of play it, you know, uh, on the slightly more conservative end of things. But my expectation is there wouldn't be a massive um, degradation in response. All right, thank you. Uh, next question. Thank you, Nicole. Uh, thank you, Dr. Mina. Um, what I would like to ask about uh, is I'm, I'm working on a story to explain to the Brazilian public uh, what is the current state of the pandemic here in the U.S. So we've been hearing about cases dropping, vaccination accelerating, and um, what would I would like to ask you is if you believe that you are more optimistic about the state of the pandemic today in the U.S., if we are looking at better days ahead in the country or if you expect a fourth wave. Um, I mean, like relative to where I was at this time last year, hugely optimistic. Um, uh, relative to where I was in November of last year, hugely optimistic. Um, um, overall, I would say, you know, I'm a little bit depressed about our general response with the single exception of the vaccine response. I'm, I'm uh, frustrated with the global inability to really you know, not, not every country, but many countries and ability to deal with this virus in an updated way. Um, but I think moving forward, we should all be pretty darn optimistic um, that the vaccines do seem to be working well. Um, we will, they're not going to be the end of this, um, but, but we're, we never thought that we were just going to end this um, pandemic. We're going to see a, a decline. We're going to then see new cases emerge again in the fall. And you know, in Brazil, it's the the seasonality is a little different, um, but we will probably continue to see outbreaks. But I do believe that um, the worst part of it is hopefully behind us. Of course, the major major caveat is I'm I, I have been and I still remain to be concerned that uh, remain concerned that um, that a, a big mutation could happen where that kind of makes the virus seem slightly blind to the immune system. Uh, and if that happens, you know, even if the mortality and hospitalization is much less, I think the population is fatigued. People just want this to be over. So even small blips are going to be, you know, are going to be big knocks in people's confidence. Um, but I do think that we're at a point now where we can be optimistic that at least probably the true worst of it is over. And now we're kind of in this long haul of just becoming accustomed to it. 
getting enough people immune, the virus isn't going to go away, but it will begin to do less and less damage because people are going to be immune. So even if they get sick, they're not going to die, for example. Even if they get infected, they won't end up in the hospital. Um, but I do think that we don't want people just to think, hey, this is going to be done by April. It's just not. Um, the virus is going to continue transmitting all across the globe. We're going to continue seeing mutations. It's still going to be front page news for a long time. People are going to still be tired and worn out by it. Um, but hopefully, we can look at the vaccines and we can really start taking a very measured approach to it where we say, where we take a big step back and we say, what is our goal with this virus? Is our goal to get to zero or is our goal just to stop hospitalizations and deaths or decrease them to a, a level that is sufficient to get society back and running and, uh, and ideally get us into a, a, a pattern that's a little bit more um, endurable than, uh, than, than we have been. And so I'm optimistic, um, but also recognizing very much that this isn't the end of it. And, and just a quick follow-up question. You mentioned the mutations. Is the, is the mutation that came from Brazil something that you were mostly worried about? Is this a special um, source of worry for you? Um, I want to be really clear that um, while that particular mutation seems worrying, yes, it is not, I do not want it to be considered a Brazilian variant or Brazilian mutation, for example. There's convergence uh, where, where that mutation is popping up elsewhere. The more we sequence, the more we find similar mutations. Um, I think we should be very cognizant that, you know, probably the U.S. may have been the greatest hotbed for these um, mutations. We just weren't, we just weren't um, sequencing to look for them. Um, so, but yes, I mean, the, the short answer is that that mutation, which is, which arose in Brazil, it arose elsewhere uh, in many different places, um, I think is uh, of concern because we do see that it is impacting immunity. That particular one isn't my greatest concern, but my concern is that, um, that we might have only seen the beginning of what these mutations are capable of. Um, will we see in the next six months a new suite of mutations that build off of the current ones that really do uh, do greater uh, damage to our immune system's ability to recognize uh, the virus? That's what I'm concerned about. I sure hope it doesn't happen. Um, but, but that is, I, I think that this should be considered some bit of foreshadowing for what might uh, come. Thank you, Dr. Mina. Sure. Uh, next question. Um, actually, yeah, I wanted to build on that previous question. Um, you know, uh, the Minnesota Department of Health found, uh, you know, sequenced the first P1 case in Minnesota and they had a write-up, uh, first case in the States. Um, and they had a write-up about it uh, in the MMWR this week. And one thing um, I wanted to ask you about is, I mean, one thing that becomes pretty clear if you read the write-up is um, the sequencing doesn't happen quick. <laughs> like, I don't think th that patient was hospitalized nine days, but it, for nine days, and the, the sequencing was after that even, I mean, all of which kind of underscores that like to someone like me who knows not a lot, I might think, oh, you know, uh, more contagious thing. 
uh, public health is going to be running these sequences. And if they figure out I've got P1, they're going to give me a call and say, hey, you really need to stay home. But I gather that's not how this works. And I wondered, given what you just said about, you know, the concern going forward about even worse variants, if they ever were to, you know, happen, um, what's the utility? Of, is there ever going to be utility of sequencing for like containing or is sequencing just about knowing? Yeah, um, your question is, a, is one of the most important ones. Uh, and it is a modern, it's an updated version of the same thing that I've been talking about for a year. Um, which uh, just, you know, without going into the whole issue of rapid tests, what I have been trying to suggest is, you know, for a long time at the beginning, PCR was just so slow and remains too slow to really be able to act to block transmission. Um, especially when it was seven days, people were getting, were ordering PCR tests and the result was not coming back in what I would consider to be an actionable time frame. Uh, even with the improvements in PCR testing, most tests are still not coming back with what I deem to be an actionable timeframe to stop transmission. It's why I've been pushing these rapid tests so much because they are an actionable timeframe. The sequencing issue and the mutations just steps it up a notch. Um, not only are we getting people results back in what is really an actionable timeframe and getting them results with enough frequencies so that we're actually catching them before they transmit. Now it goes another step and we're saying, we don't just need to know who is positive and who is potentially transmissible, but we wanna know who to prioritize and really work on those people to help them not transmit because they have this dangerous strain that's even worse than the first one. We're not even close to that, um, not even close. Uh, so the best we can do at the moment uh, is either build new and newer technologies that will detect the mutations that are important right there in the test itself, so that we don't have to sequence, and then do sequencing in the back end to make sure we're not missing anything. Um, that would probably be a, a good way, but we don't have the technologies and tools uh, authorized yet to really make that a reality. Um, I do think, though, that your question is absolutely crucial. We should be figuring out um, many new ways to be able to identify people, uh, especially prioritize those people who need to be prioritized to tell them not to transmit. This, this also happened, for example, early on, uh, back in April or May, I, I was talking to the CDC and I said, look, we should really be prioritizing contact tracing to those people with really high viral loads because that's the best bang for your buck to stop transmission. Um, but that even that was too much. You know, we haven't prioritized contact tracing based on viral load. Um, and so I think while I would love to see sequencing get to a speed that it can actually be actionable, we're, we're nowhere close to it. But we do see, you know, we have these new sequencing devices like Oxford Nanopore, and you cannot do sequencing practically on the spot. Um, so that it, there is actually a reality, a world where we could potentially do this. Um, but it's not happening at scale at the moment. Sorry, just but real quick, what was that last um, technology you mentioned or company? Oh, or? Um, sorry, it's it's something. It's a company called Oxford Nanopore. It's a sequencing device. Do I? I don't have one around here. It's in my lab, um, but it's like the size of an iPhone, and you just put a sample straight onto it, and it can sequence in real time. So you could envision if you have, um, let's say, you had a rapid testing program set up 
uh, on the street and you wanted to test people rapidly, uh, you could actually find somebody who's positive and sequence them all within a matter, you know, within a very, very short time frame. You take the positive specimen, you put it straight onto the, um, onto the, um, the nanopore sequencing device and you'd have a result uh, potentially very, very quickly. Um, so there's a lot that we could could do. It, it's not quite as simple as just kind of one to the next. The sequencing still takes the prep step, but um, there is there are ways that we could be able to do this in much faster fashion than we generally are doing it. It's part of what I would consider if we were to try to prepare for the next pandemic and try to actually use the tools of the 21st uh, uh, century, um, you know, these are the kinds of tools we would want to be building on. You know, we would want to be thinking, what do we have at our disposal that's fast and frequent and accessible, including sequencing, and really rise to the occasion and the challenge of this pandemic, which I would say by all metrics we haven't done specifically in the testing space, we really haven't uh, done one bit. Okay, thank you. Sure. Uh, next question. Hi, thanks. Um, I wanted to ask what the, the latest we know on how much the, the vaccines cut transmission of the virus. My understanding is it, we know it cuts it a lot, but it doesn't cut it down to 0% chance that you would spread it to somebody? I mean, is that right? And what do you think the implications for even after you're fully vaccinated? Is there some period of time where you should keep, you know, wearing a mask when you're like on the subway or around, you know, a group of people um, who might not be uh, vaccinated? Um, yeah, it's a great question. It's one of the most important. And again, one, one that we should have um, paid attention to when we started the vaccine trials. One of the best um, ways that we have to look at this is purely just to look at how many people have detectable virus, even you know, regardless of symptom onset or anything, how many people have detectable virus um, over the duration after they get vaccinated and what do those titers look like when they do get it. What we've seen in the, in the data, which all of which has potential for ma massive biases right now, but in the data that we do have, we see around uh, a, a, a three to four or five CT value difference. Um, we've seen that some people can still get to decent titers of virus, decent viral loads, even after being vaccinated. But we do believe, you know, and intuition and, um, you know, would, uh, would, would essentially suggest that if people aren't getting sick, they're probably not going to, to transmit as much, period. You know, I don't think there's a lot of question about that. But does it go to zero? Probably not. You know, as we start to see antibodies decay more and more after people get vaccinated, a natural process, normal, um, will, we, um, will we end up seeing transmission uh, start to increase even more again? So will we kind of see a lull after people get vaccinated then transmission can start increasing again from people? That may very well happen. It's actually pretty hard to ensure that you have enough antibodies right there to stop any replication. You might be able to stop some disease inside of you, but to stop all replication and stop all transmission is difficult. You need antibodies kind of sitting there at the ready to go all the time. Once your plasma blasts all die off after a few months, your antibodies go way down. And whether or not you have enough in your mucosa to really prevent any replication is a, uh, is a question that we're waiting to, to see the answers to. Um, so I, I think that we're going to see a large reduction though, but I don't think we should 
uh, feel that we are just, um, you know, that, that we're in the clear for, for no transmission after vaccination. So, I mean, how, uh, I mean, is this a, I mean, it was just a personal choice, but I mean, how uh, does that delay our quote unquote return to normal if we still need to be worried some about uh, transmission or? Well, that's kind of gets to um, what I was saying earlier, where we really have to ask the question, what's the goal here? Why are we, what are, what is our end game? Is our end game to stop all cases or is our end game to stop all hospital or most hospitalizations and deaths? There's nothing wrong with people getting respiratory virus infections um, uh, if they're not killing you and if they're not sending you to the hospital. Um, it's part of our natural evolution. Usually, unfortunately, it starts as babies. And so by the time you're an adult, you have built up enough immunity that it really isn't a big issue anymore for that particular virus. In this case, that didn't happen. And so um, there's a part of me, actually, if I take a big step back, and this is a little bit controversial or a lot, um, you know, maybe we actually want to do something totally different. And we, um, we say, okay, people uh, who are vaccinated, we actually want, you know, some amount of transmission to continue to persist uh, so that people continue to get naturally boosted and keep their immunity um, and keep kind of boosting their immunity as long as we have enough of the vulnerable people protected that massive outbreaks don't happen and people don't end up in the hospital. We would, it's okay to have the virus transmit and continuing to boost the immune system uh, over and over. It will just set us up for our future selves to be in even better shape. So how to balance that, that's a lot of, um, the, lot of, a lot of the kind of work that we try to look at to say, what would be the consequences of one versus the other over a multi-year period of time uh, using mathematical and, and epidemiological models? Got it. Thank you. That helps. Uh, next question. Uh, hi, thank you. Um, there's been some anecdotal chatter that perhaps people with um, so-called long COVID or you know post-COVID um, may feel better after the vaccine. I'm wondering if you know if anyone is actually studying that in a formal way or, and or if it's more likely just a placebo effect. It's a great question. Um, uh, I wouldn't want to say it's a placebo effect right now. Um, I think that there are reasons to believe that it could be, um, that it could be, um, that that kind of benefit could happen. You know, there's been some suggestions that maybe you're distracting the immune system and like pulling pulling some of those inflammatory cells that would otherwise be attacking, you know, causing long COVID, which we don't fully understand yet, um, to sort of be divert their energy and attention to something else for a little while. And so you might see a, a brief reprieve. Um, or maybe there is some viral reservoir that's actually sticking around for a little while and uh, you're boosting the immune system to really knock it out. It hasn't been clear, but I do think that there's, um, I think that there's a likelihood that, uh, that this is a real phenomenon where, where giving vaccines could um, uh, boost your recovery from long COVID. Um, I don't okay. know if anyone is formally studying it at the moment, but I wouldn't be surprised if there are people doing formal trials. Thank you. Sure. Um, Dr. Mann, it looks like that is our last question. It's also about 1230. Um, do you have anything, any comments you'd like to make before we wrap up today? Um, no, I don't uh, today. Um, I think this was a nice reprieve from talking about rapid tests today. And um, 
My, my love is immunology and vaccines, so I'm, I'm happy to take those kinds of questions anytime. But Excellent. thanks a lot, everyone. This concludes the March 5th press conference.